You might find this one interesting because it didn't follow the path I thought it was going to follow. And I think there's probably at least one more message to follow this one that's going to be more experiential from maybe Kim or Teresa or Kim and Teresa or or who knows what that um, has experience in ministry dealing with hard and heavy things to, to bring light to some of this. So let me just go back and review. The first week we talked about, you know, kind of what is and how does God see sexual immorality. And here's my definition. Sexual immorality. Any sexual expression outside of that exclusively between a husband, which is a man, and a wife, which is a woman, is immoral and sinful and must not be done or practiced by a Christian. So if you name Jesus as Lord, then any sexual stuff that doesn't involve you as a man and your wife as a woman, because husband and wife are are kind of sloppy definitions in our culture anymore, so we need to make sure the biblical definition, or you as a woman, wife, and your husband, is out of bounds with regard to God. It's sinful, and it needs to not be done. Second week, we talked about why would a professing Christian engage in such behavior, and one reason that they may be a professing Christian, but they might not actually be a born-again Christian, an actual Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. They may not be saved. Paul, even when he's speaking to the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking to a situation in one of the churches, he called the person who was actually engaging in that behavior a so-called brother. He, He didn't say that the person wasn't, But he wasn't quite ready to say that they were, so he kind of called them a so-called brother. And and that might be why they're engaged in that, that they're they're actually not saved. And then the practice of that kind of behavior would indicate that God's not in there. The second reason, we said, might be just literally a problem with being uh, able to crucify their flesh, to deny themselves. And there might be two roots to that one. One is they might be under deception, and they, and they think they can't, that it's just bigger than me and I just can't. The other is that they're literally just choosing to. Um, I know a guy who met a woman, and he left his family, his wife and his children, and he was confronted in love by a, another brother in the Lord, and he said, don't you know what's wrong? And the guy said, I do. Then you need to repent. I won't. Why? Because I just don't want to. You let yourself get down that path far enough and God takes a backseat to your personal passions and desires, and that person has, I mean, you know, God only knows. I pray for repentance. I pray a lot. You know, but that person has pretty much train-wrecked their faith because God says the people that do that stuff cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And the, and the indication, now, he wouldn't lose his salvation if he was ever saved. He might have been a so-called brother. Who knows? But if he ever was, he wouldn't lose his salvation in that sin, but the practice of that sin would indicate that Jesus wasn't truly Lord of his life, and he had not actually um, stayed in faith. And then the third thing was that maybe there's a problem in the heart, you know, not the physical heart, but the heart, the center of a person, that, that somehow their heart has gotten um, dinged and that's the, that's the tool that the enemy uses to keep a person bound in that kind of um, situation. And then last week, we, we started to talk about the why of this. And um, 
I, I made a declaration that, that I think is truth. I, I think I can support it easily in the scriptures. Sin, sexual immorality, or you pick it, has, doesn't have power. It is empowered. Its power comes from one of three sources. So sin by itself has no power unless it's given power. The three sources are first the law, second is deception or unbelief, and the third is choice. So sin could have a power over a person if they're not saved, they would be under the law, and the Bible says that the power of sin is the law. So if a person wants to be free of the power of sin over their life, then they can confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they can be filled with the Holy Spirit, they'll be taken out from under the law, they're not under law anymore, but they're under grace, or the law of the Spirit of Christ in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a different legal system. Now sin doesn't have power over them anymore. They can be free to repent. The second is deception or unbelief that they, they may not believe that they can get free. They just think it's bigger than me. It's overwhelmed me. And in that case, they need to know the truth that it's not. The scripture teaches us that they have to acknowledge the truth and the truth will make them free. They can repent from their sin. The third one is the slippery slope, which is choice. If a person is aware of sinful behavior, and no Christian that's been a Christian for more than about five minutes would be deceived to think that, you know, having an affair, adultery, fornication, all that kind of stuff is not sin, they would just be choosing. And in, if they're going to be free, then they have to humble themselves before their confession to God, right? You confessed when you got born again that Jesus would have the lordship of your life. He's not in, uh, endorsing that behavior. Therefore, you need to go back and humble yourself before the confession that you made, confess that sin, and then by the power of God, you'll repent from it. Those three things. So up to now, we haven't discussed the sin or in sexual immorality, if, that, you know, if we follow that specific, that flows from a damaged heart. Today, we will. A couple of weeks ago, you might remember, um, I spoke to a scripture, Proverbs 4.23. Watch over or guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So if we're not careful with guarding our hearts, and there's a million scriptures that I could share with you. We, we touched a bunch of them a couple of weeks ago. If we're not careful with our hearts, then the life that flows from us will not be life. It'll be broken, it'll be limited, um, it, it'll be darkness in some regards. Because if we're not careful with our heart, then that life that flows out will be influenced by things that aren't holy. Now, sometimes people guard their heart in a way that the Bible doesn't speak to. And that's a response to pain. And, and we'll talk about that. But what, what the scripture is saying here is, be careful. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. If you're not careful what your eye is exposed to, the light inside of you might actually be darkness. So we have to be careful about what we expose ourselves to, the thoughts that we allow to have a place in our minds. Otherwise, the heart can be compromised, and then from a compromised heart, and, and that sounds very you know, technical, a compromised heart, a broken heart, a, a, a damaged heart, a hurting heart, will flow things that are just not beautiful and glorious before the Lord. Heart issues. So you get what I mean when I say heart, like your heart, you know, my heart is broken. You know, you had a relationship that you don't have anymore. My heart is broken. I really thought this or that. Or, you know, maybe I, I've been hurt. 
and my heart is broken. That kind of broken. Heart issues flow from, flow from things like this. Word curses. This is a, not an exhaustive list. Word curses, abuse, and trauma. So if somebody's got a problem in their heart, it could flow from a place like that, a word curse, abuse that they've experienced, or trauma that they've experienced, maybe even from that particular abuse. They're established by, and again, this may not be an exhaustive list, by pain and by fear. So some trauma happens to a person, they don't deal with it well, and because of pain and because of fear, bad symptoms come out. In my personal opinion, the pain and the fear and and the thing that I'm going to talk about, the stronghold, is often, if not always, demonically inspired, demonically strengthened, and demonically exploited. You have to be very careful that in the guarding of your heart, you don't close your heart. Doctors, like a medical doctor, they have to discern between symptoms and root causes. The example I use all the time is fever and infection. If somebody has an infection in their body, it'll manifest maybe as a fever. And someone could say, well, hey, if you take some aspirin, the fever will go away. And you can. You can mask the symptom, but you don't deal with the root problem with an aspirin. You need an antibiotic to deal with the the infection. So a person's like, why is it that I keep getting a fever? I can't get over this fever. They keep taking an aspirin. They keep taking an aspirin. They keep taking an aspirin. And for a little while, the fever goes away, but it comes back because they're treating the symptom. They're not treating the root cause of the problem, the heart or the infection in that case. Spiritual heart issues are exactly the same. Sin is the symptom but a damaged heart, a hurting heart, is typically the root of why. So uh, Kim used the, uh, a, an example of um, lust management. You know, if a guy is struggling with pornography or something, he can get software to put on his iPad and software to put on his computer and software to get on his phone so that he can't get to pornography. It's like taking an aspirin when you've got a fever. You're, you're, you're trying to disable the symptom, but you're not actually ministering to the root, that kind of thing. So it's the same across everything. Often, 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 maybe always, I don't know, the, the sinfulness, especially for a Christian, well, maybe exclusively for a Christian, is the symptom. It's not the root. So, so when, you, when you see the smoke, you go find the fire. You, you don't just put the fan on to blow the smoke away. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. Amen? Okay. So sexual immorality can be the fruit or the symptom of a damaged heart. Other examples of of that might be things like anger, jealousy, idolatry, overeating. And I put this last one in here, withholding love. When we get a hurt heart, what's the first command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oftentimes, we will withhold love because there's something broken in our heart. And then that becomes a really big deal that we would, we would be so easily deceived that that's not sinful. I'm just guarding my heart. No, no, no. You're, you're in sin because you're not expressing love and you're commanded to love before you're commanded to anything else. But the pain of whatever is that root is symptom is 
uh, withholding love. And, and those symptoms then could be described as, or should maybe be described as coping mechanisms. You can tell I'm a little out of my element right now. I mean, I, I get it. I really do get it. I have experience with it personally, you know, my own heart. I have experience personally in ministering to situations like this. But I'm the guy that wants to read the scripture, tell you what it means, don't do what's bad, do what God says, hallelujah, have a nice lunch. This one is it's drawn on me a little different than I'm used to speaking to you. They're bad coping mechanisms when they're issues resulting, sinful issues resulting from the heart, coping with something in a bad way. And a huge percentage of the time when the devil is involved in this, and, and I think a huge percentage of the time the devil is involved in this, it's because he's wanting to attack our identity. He wants to define who we are in our own thinking instead of letting God define who we are in our own thinking. So now let's look at um, what the scripture says about how that stuff manifests and then how we would deal with it. And time permitting, I'm going to just read some scripture. It's it's interesting. Earlier this week, early in the week, I I knew this is where I was going. I, I have experience personally. I have experience with other people. But I didn't know how to present it. And I found myself getting back to those three things from last week. Listen, you need either to get saved, you need to figure out what's true and believe it, or you need to repent because you know what you're doing and you just need to stop. Everything still boils down to those things. Having a heart issue doesn't change any of that truth. But I find myself being drawn back towards last week's sermon again. And I don't think that would have been helpful. And then uh, Thursday... We have the situation where we see somebody get free from a heart issue that by fact of Scripture could have happened without dealing with, you know, but by practical fact wasn't going to happen and, until the stuff came out and the love came in and the understanding happened and then the deliverance and the freedom came. So it's funny that Lord showed me that when I'm struggling with this kind of stuff. As a, It's not funny. It's God, right. Before all that happened, I thought, I don't know. I can't find in Scripture where, where Jesus says, hey, if somebody has a heart issue, here's what you do. Or in the Old Testament, where, you know, or, or in the epistles. I, I don't know. So I thought, well, I'm going to go start reading Proverbs because Proverbs is wisdom. And, and maybe there'll be some wisdom in the Proverbs that will guide me towards the answers to these questions so that I can say they're biblical. I can show you biblically ra- rather than only experientially. And it's amazing. Not, not, not exactly directly speaking to, you know, fortresses and strongholds, but the truth. It's just overwhelming when you read the Proverbs. So we'll start in the New Testament first, and, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, is in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Very familiar scripture, but very, very, very important scripture that we understand. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, or some translations call it strongholds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against or exalting itself against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Herein lies the the gist of the whole issue when it's demonically inspired. 
is that we're in a war. The war is not with each other, although the devil will try to manifest it in relationships so that he will get somebody to do something, lie to them, they bite the lie, cause them to say something to us or do something or whatever, and now all of a sudden we're squawking with each other when the issue is the spiritual issue. It's the devil trying to bring separation to people and separation within the church, and ultimately, if he can pull it off, separation between people and God himself, right? So the first thing we have to understand is it's a spiritual battle that we're fighting. And, and, and the, there's good spirits, heavenly angels, that are, that are sent on behalf of those that might inherit salvation, right? That's how the angels are described in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And then there's dark spirits that are under the, under the headship of Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air, the king of this world right now, that are doing his bidding. His bidding is to kill, steal, and destroy. That's it. There's no goodness in him. There's no goodness in them. They're absolutely dark and evil. And the, the prize at both ends of the equation is the soul of a human being. Can they keep them from being connected to God? Can they lie to them? Or do they come and know God and then trust God through his word such that they might be reconciled to him and stay that way? Okay. If, if you or someone is struggling with something, sexual immorality, for example, and you just can't seem to get free, then you need to understand that you're in a battle. And, and, and you're not just battling yourself. You're battling spiritually. The enemy uses these things that the Scripture calls strongholds or fortresses to redefine truth for the purpose of killing, stealing, and destroying. Okay, So what's a stronghold? And you can think of it in your mind. You can think of your heart. You can kind of almost think of them together. A stronghold is a place where um, Satan has made a suggestion into our thoughts. And we've, we've accepted that suggestion to some extent. We've, we've, we've agreed with it. And uh, there's a wisdom that's in the world, and there's a wisdom that's heavenly. And the wisdom of the world, the Bible still calls it wisdom, because you can draw a line of logic through it from a point to a point that, that will make sense in your mind. For example, Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, offer them your left. Well, there's no earthly wisdom in that, right? But there's heavenly wisdom in it because what God's looking for is to get that person who's slapping you, who's, who's trying to initiate evil, or maybe you know thinks they're responding to evil. When you don't respond in the same way, it starts to diffuse that thing, and then reconciliation can happen. So, so you say, well, hit me on the other cheek too. I mean, just slap me until you're slapped out because it's hard to fight against that because grace comes when we obey God. Right? Don't return evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. If someone takes you, slaps you on one side, off from the other side, that's heavenly wisdom. That doesn't make sense in the world. Earthly wisdom would say, hey, if, if he puts a hand on your face, you put two hands on his face. And you return for him what he's given to you. And then what's he likely to try to do? Put three hands on your face. And ultimately, somebody's going to die from getting punched or... No good, no reconciliation, no love is ever going to flow from that way. So there's demonic wisdom. That's what the Bible calls earthly wisdom, demonic, selfish, or heavenly wisdom that's peaceable, true, and it brings about God's objectives, not Satan's objectives. So it's a spiritual battle. 
The enemy uses strongholds to redefine truth. In the moment that somebody slaps you on your right cheek, he's going to send you a little thought that says, and, hey, you know, I understand what God says, but the guy just hit me on my right cheek. And then you've got to decide, right, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every lofty thing, every imagination, every speculation that enters your thinking has to be held against a true knowledge of God. If it won't stand to a true knowledge of God, if it's trying to exalt itself above that, then it needs to be destroyed. It needs to be put down. It can't be given place in your mind. The problem is Satan doesn't come to us and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm looking to kill, steal, and destroy, and you're at the top of my list right now. So I'm going to feed you a little poison. If you just drink it, that would be great. It comes veiled in deception. Stop drinking the poison, you. I'm going to send you to the other church until you straighten up. He wants to deceive you, and he's really, really good at it. It'll make sense because it'll have wisdom associated with that thought, that imagination, that speculation will be attached to some wisdom that you can draw a line that makes sense. But it's not heavenly. So if he's successful in, you know, Jeff, you know, laying a block, Satan can't hide behind a block. But he might be able to create a little mess behind a block. A fortress is built of blocks is where I'm going with this thing. But if he can get you to let him lay a second block and a third block and a fourth block, and he starts to put a course up and another course up, you'd think I was working in your trade. Another course up, pretty soon he's got a stronghold in your mind, and that's the place that he'll start to operate from, and then he'll look to expand. A little twist of the, of the truth here, a little twist of the truth there, and, and pretty soon you see truth through the stronghold, not through the Word of God. And then you live your life in this messed up way because your truth has been corrupted because Satan has built a stronghold in your mind and that's where he's operating from. So when the scripture here says that the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds, it doesn't go into any detail as to what those weapons of our warfare are. But I believe the weapon of Satan's warfare is lies and deceptions. The weapons of our warfare... (laughs) I'm having a little trouble with my W's. (laughs) The weapons of our warfare is God's truth. It's the only weapon we have in Ephesians chapter 6, right? We got a a belt, we got a helmet, we got a a breastplate, a shield, and we got shoes on our feet, and we got all this stuff. It's all defensive. The only offensive weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So when Jesus was coming out of the wilderness after 40 days and Satan himself was tempting him, he would tempt him with twisted scripture. And Jesus would respond with his sword, the truth. And then in Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he's refining the truth that they had some sense for it, but it wasn't completely refined as it needed to be. It seemed reasonable, right? There, there was some logic to it, but it wasn't completely true the way that they were seeing it so he uses stronghold and we have to understand that that we may have strongholds when when somebody approaches you and says hey blah 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 this doesn't seem right you got to be willing to accept that your truth may not be true so that you can get well how does the enemy do that through speculations imaginations they're just thoughts and if you look at ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about He uses the same phrase that we don't war in the flesh but in the spirit, and it talks about these things called flaming arrows of the uh, evil one or fiery darts. 
same, same thing. Those are thoughts. God has given Satan access to our thought life. Or demons, you know, probably not Satan himself for any of us, but, you know, demons that, that insert thoughts in our mind, and then we have to see those thoughts, every thought, does that stand obedient to Christ? Would, would Jesus embrace that thought? Does it, does it uh, agree with the true knowledge of God, or does it exalt itself above a true knowledge of God? And this is going to seem a little, maybe a little odd to you, but I believe that not only can Satan use the fortress to kill, steal, and destroy, you know, in our own lives, but if we are confronted, if the fortress is confronted by the truth and we continue to hold on to the lie, that it becomes a form of idolatry. Because we would know the truth, but we're choosing not to acknowledge the truth. We're acknowledging the lie. And again, it's really way more common than what you think. Because that's the way a person has learned to protect themselves. They've experienced some pain, some trauma, some kind of abuse, some hurtful thing. And, and in the absence of truth, they've, they've figured out themselves how to protect themselves. So now you're telling them, hey, listen... This thing that, that you think has been protecting you, you need to let it down. And they're like, man, I, they, I mean, it's not a conscious thing necessarily, but it's like I can't because this is what keeps me safe. And sadly, if it goes far enough, it becomes a person's identity. You, you see people whose identity is in their sickness. Their identity is in their disability. Their identity is in something other than what the Bible says, and that's become an idol now because... An idol, the definition of, of biblical pride or, or idolatry is, is this is God. And he says one plus one is two. But to protect your heart, you say, no, no, one plus one is three. And you can see, you know, you get the, somebody proves it to you and you say no. Well, now you've exalted this thing above God. And it's become an idol in your life. And that's even worse. All right. The weapons of the enemy's warfare are lies and deception. The weapons of our warfare are the truth as defined by Scripture. The battle is about which we believe and acknowledge. That's it. That spiritual warfare at its bare essence is the enemy says A. No, God says A. The enemy says B, and we have to decide which one we're going to acknowledge. If we acknowledge God, we're winning the spiritual battle. If we acknowledge Satan, we're losing the spiritual warfare battle. That's where it all starts. So what do we do? This reads like an outline. It's, if, if it seems kind of cold and dry, sorry, it'll get better maybe. What, what do we do? <laughs> we examine symptoms and look for roots, which are fortresses and strongholds. We always need to be, and this is why, who said the thing like, you need to have somebody in your life that knows you well enough that if they tell you something and you believe something else, you by definition believe them. Right. Somebody yeah, that's not, I don't know if that's exactly how the guy said it, but, but if you don't have somebody that knows you pretty well examining your life, then you don't have anybody that can see the deception that you can't see. And, and, and you say, for all the world, blah, blah, blah is true, and they say it is not. Someone that you can acknowledge, okay, I'm going to trust you, and then ministry starts to sort that thing out, Okay. So examples might be symptom, might be sexually immoral behavior. You might be engaging in who knows what in that regard. The root 
of that symptom is a lie we believe about ourselves, a stronghold that drives the symptom. So the symptom of sexual immorality is driven by a root that's a lie that we believe about ourselves that manifests itself that way. The trauma might have been some sexual abuse that the person has actually suffered. So maybe as a small child they were sexually abused, and then Satan used that trauma to build a fortress in their mind or in their heart of how they see the truth, and that manifests, right? How many times do you see where, like, um, men that are caught as rapists, you know, they, they rape people, and then the police catch them, and the psychologist gets a hold of them, and they talk to them? Almost every time they were abused as children in that very same way. So somehow they're trying to comfort that pain or, or deal with that issue, and it's, it's a bad coping mechanism, that's destroyed their life because they're going to end up in prison. They can't be in society because they're not safe. Another one, kind of a simple example, is you've met a bully in your life, somebody that's a bully, right? So the symptom is somebody that's a bully, and the root is is probably a stronghold that was created by a word curse. There was a guy I went to junior high school with. We were in the same crowd that hung together, and he would just punch on this little guy he you know everybody was kind of afraid of this guy you know because we all thought he was a tough guy um but there was this one guy he he wouldn't stand up to him he you know and and he would just punch him just because it was fun and and i'm like man what is wrong with you why do you do that and you know yeah you want some too kind of thing i said stop it anyway one day we're at his house we went over to his house on our bikes we're never he never invited us to his house He's coming up to the door, and all of a sudden, this drunken voice out the door. I, I can't say the words that he said to his son. He called him a sissy, you know, in a different way, and told him that he wasn't a man, that he's never going to be a man. And, and he's doing it in front of all of his pals. Why do you think that guy's a bully? Because he's dealing with this pain. His dad tells him he's a punk, he's a weakling, he's all these kind of things, and he's trying to prove to himself that he's not. But some of that's inside. So he isn't picking on the big guy. He's picking on the little guy. Now, what do you think's going on in that little guy's heart? As Satan is telling him, you're just a piece of crap. No, you're not worth anything. People just use you as their punching bag. Now, Satan starts to get a hold of that. And then that guy's life gets messed up because he's believing what's not true. Because all of this stuff is, it's like builds on top of itself. If we don't get a hold If we, don't, if we don't get it before its roots get deep, then the, the deception is so big that the person just won't acknowledge it. They just literally won't acknowledge it or maybe can't acknowledge it. So what do we do? We examine symptoms and look for roots. This is out of order. Somebody said, I'm angry. How come? I don't know. Somebody else, what's the matter? I'm sad. Why? I don't know. Well, if you're going to be mad, you should have a reason. If you're going to be sad, you should have a reason. Then you, that's, that's where men and women struggle, right? Man says you're sad, let's figure out the reason. Kill it! Now you can be happy, right? Woman says, I just wanted to talk about it. No, 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 we don't talk about it. We kill it. And then we can be happy again, right? Why would we want to admire that for one more second? 
we examine symptoms. We look for roots. The roots are, Bible calls them fortresses and strongholds. No. I have to edit this one a lot before I put it on the internet. If we see a symptom and we start to look for the roots, we go to God and for Scripture to find the truth because it's always going to be born in a lie because that's all Satan has to work with, lies and deception. No power. Remember, sin doesn't have any power over us Christians unless we empower it some way. Once God or God through the Scripture has shown us the truth, we need to acknowledge it, not hide from it anymore. We need to acknowledge it. then we need to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. That's scripture. The other thing that I would say is it's not impossible, but it's not nearly as probable that you get free if you try to do it by yourself. Big amen to that. And and the devil, as you're starting to sort through this, Guess what? Let's just go back and use sexual immorality for a second. Guess what his big tool is going to be next at that point? As you're thinking, I need to get some help, what's he going to work with you? Shame. That's right. And then he'll get you to hide behind shame and think that you can and think that you can and think that you will, but you won't. You'll need help. That's why I think he showed me the thing on Thursday. You know, you could tell somebody, hey, listen, are you a Christian? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. How do you know? Blah, blah, blah. I agree you're a Christian. You need to stop it right now. Just stop it. And they try and they try and they try, but because the stronghold is so deep, can they? Yeah. Are they likely to? No. So we need to not be proud. We need to not have shame. We need to know, quite frankly, that whatever I'm struggling with, you struggle with it at least once. Whatever you're struggling with, I struggle with it too, or I used to struggle with it. I've found victory over it. That, that we don't have to be concerned because every one of us got a story, right? And, and, the, and the story of glory is Jesus, but the story before the story is not. So don't let shame keep you from getting free. So let's say, let's say we are free. How do we stay free? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every imagination, speculation thought that tries to exalt itself above the true knowledge of God has to be destroyed. Every single thought, every single time. It's funny, I'm talking about sexual immorality and I'll keep having thoughts. Like, you know, not right now, thank you God. But I'll have thoughts. But I know they're not my thoughts. They're flaming arrows, right? If, if he can get me to stumble while I'm telling you about all this kind of stuff, then he can just blow the credibility, right? And it's like, It's not all day long, but I would say at least once or twice every single day I catch a flaming arrow and I I stop myself. I say, Lord, I absolutely disagree with that thought. That wasn't my thought. That was a flaming arrow. And I'm telling you right now, I destroy that thing, that lofty speculation, that lie of the devil. I want nothing to do with that. And that's spiritual warfare. I'm not letting him plant that seed in my heart. There's no way. Here's the gotcha, though. You've got to know the truth to identify the lie. And, and, and if somehow you're going to be free from 
the, the guiles and the wiles of the enemy, outside of the knowledge of truth, you, you've deceived yourself or you've been deceived. You know, well, I, you know, I can't read good and blah, blah, blah. Keith Engberg, are you a good reader? How many books do you read that aren't the Bible? None. <laughs> Sometimes Patty will read them a little passage here and there. Do you read your Bible? Does it speak to you? Amen. I hear it all the time. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. Guess what? I'm 40 years old. I'm not 12 when I start reading the Bible. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm not the dumbest guy in the world. And I'm reading this stuff, and it's like I'm reading Chinese, man. None of it makes any sense until it starts to make sense. Because God says if you'll diligently seek after him, he'll let you find him, right? He's in that, I mean, you know, he's not like, I know you're in here somewhere, God. He's in there everywhere in that book. And if you'll commit yourself that you really want to know him, then he's going to let you know him. And then you'll start to know the truth. And you'll have the tools that you need. Your sword of the spirit, the word of God, is like a big pen if you don't know the word of God. It's not any good. It's not going to help you. It's a toothpick unless you know the word of God. That's the gotcha. All this is great stuff except you've got to know the word of God. Now, you might not know as much as somebody else knows, and you might be wrestling, and they may be able to enlighten you. But if you're going to try to make it through this life with Jesus without actually knowing his word good luck to you because you're making a mistake you need to know the word of god when second corinthians 10 says every speculation every imagination every lofty thing that tries to exalt itself above the knowledge of god why is it that that the enemy tries to do Here's an answer. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I got that one up there? Okay. I'm going to read part, and then you're going to read the next part. Just grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. See, grace and peace you have because you know God. The more you know God, guess what? Grace and peace are multiplied in you. So if there's an area of your life where you're not having peace, there's an area of God that you don't know yet. Because grace and peace, right, and, and that's, be, yeah, you believe in a lie. There's, there's something about God that you don't know. Grace and peace are multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. In the absence of the knowledge of God, guess what? No grace and peace. You need more grace and peace? Like there's no peace in my life? Get to know God better. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through what? The true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So, see, if the enemy can destroy your knowledge of God, he can define your knowledge of yourself and destroy your identity. But if you will grasp Onto seek after the knowledge of God, then the knowledge of God will define you. Why? Because you're made in his image. The enemy doesn't want you to know God because he wants to tell you who you are. Because if God tells you who you are, then he can't jack with you like he wants to jack with you. That doesn't sound very churchy, but you know what I mean. That's the gist of that teaching. But I'm not done. I told you I went into Proverbs 
to try to understand how to, how to teach to minister to these kind of problems. And I want to just give you some of what God gave me from Proverbs. Um, I'll explain a little, and then if I've got a couple minutes, then I'm just going to read you some more scriptures. You would do yourself a favor to go read like at least, you know, chapter 1 through 7 of Proverbs. Read it through this lens of what we're talking about. So, wisdom, a true knowledge of God, wisdom, you know, it's broader than that, I think, but wisdom, freedom, and the fear of the Lord. Have you ever heard, how many of you have heard the phrase, the fear of the Lord or the fear of God, right? It's a big deal. The fear of God's a big deal. The fear of the Lord's a big deal. And I think that I had a decent understanding of it, but a very incomplete understanding until I went to try to learn to how am I going to teach this lesson on Sunday. The Lord expanded to me what I think is the real foundation of the fear of the Lord. I'm going to give that to you today. Wisdom and freedom are bound like this to the fear of the Lord. So let me just read you some scriptures. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we desperately need wisdom, right? We need, we need to know what God says as we come to every fork and every road. Every situation that presents our, itself to us always requires us to make decisions. We need to know God's wisdom so that we can navigate through life, bringing glory to his name, not corrupting ourselves. How is wisdom acquired? The fear of the Lord. So if I'm afraid of God, I'll be wise? Dang straight. (laughs) But I'll expand on that a little bit. Struggling with who you are, struggle with your identity, gain the knowledge of God, understand yourself, you're made in his image. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, The fear of the Lord is the starting place for wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the starting place for knowledge. Proverbs 15.33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Fearing God is the instruction that will gain you wisdom. So you can see what's happening is through the the Psalms, through the Proverbs, with regard to wisdom, and when you read in you know those first at least seven chapters, read the whole thing, be even better for you, but you're, there's a voice that's speaking. The voice is actually wisdom, and ladies, wisdom is a feminine voice, so you know we acknowledge that. I'm not sure what that means personally, but wisdom is actually a female voice in the Proverbs. But it's wisdom that's speaking these things, okay? So the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, And before honor comes humility. Why must humility come before honor? Because you see, without the fear of the Lord, then the wisdom that you're going to access is going to be your own. And there is no exaltation. There is no honor in in walking in that wisdom which is not born of the fear of God. So if you want honor, I mean, it talks about riches. You want to be rich? Wisdom. It brings richness. It brings length to your days. It brings all kinds of amazing benefits, right? But it only starts with the fear of God. So you have to humble yourself because there's a situation. Guy smacked me on the right cheek. What am I going to do? Do I fear God? If I fear God, I offer him the left cheek. 
I offer him the left, left cheek, then I'm starting to operate in wisdom. Not earthly wisdom, but heavenly wisdom. Now God has got me in a place where he can honor me. And how he does that in that situation, it's an act of grace. See, when I surrender my wisdom to his wisdom, because he has a higher place in my heart than I have in my heart, then grace comes, right? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the, to the humble. Now all of a sudden, this guy that's wanting to smack me all on my face, he's not confronted by me anymore. He's confronted by the grace of God. Not that lightning's going to strike him dead, but that he might start to come around to a more excellent way of thinking and living than the way he is right now. Because when I humble myself, God's grace enters a situation, not just for me, but for the situation. The fear of the Lord is humble. To get freedom, you know, kind of tying this back to our bigger topic today, to get freedom, we must be humble to the truth, despite how real the lie living in the fortress feels, right? I mean, that stuff feels real, and it's scary to turn it loose because you think it's been protecting you. It's a lie, and it has to go. So no matter how scary it feels, you need to let it go. So then here's where the Lord showed me. People would say, well, you know, the fear of the Lord, that's really a reverence for God. And I'm like, you know, shut up. It's fear. You just need to be afraid of God. It's smart to be afraid of God. You know why? Well, because he might condemn you to his eternal wrath. You should just be afraid of God. I don't think that's untrue at all. But that's not the foundation of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord actually is reverence. It's what will you reverence in your heart? Will you reverence God? Or will you reverence yourself? Will you reverence God? Or will you reverence the world? Will you fear God? Or will you fear the world? Because the world's going to threaten you. That you can't have its stuff if you don't participate in its programs. And you might like to have some of that stuff. Who are you going to fear? Who are you going to reverence? And he took me right here to show me what the essence of fear of the Lord is. You ready? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. The fear of the Lord is when we acknowledge God in the face of really strong dissent. When everything inside of us, everything that we think, everything that we know says one thing, but we choose to acknowledge what God says. That's the fear of God. So if you wonder, do I have the fear of God? You know, am I really afraid of him or whatever? It's like, no, no, here's how you know. If you know the truth and you choose it, you have the fear of God. You are, you are reverencing God in your decisions. So when you're lost for what to do, go to the Scripture. And if the scripture tells you something that makes you uncomfortable, then get together with a brother, pray, and then fear God. Do what he says. Because it'll be healing to your bones. It'll be length to your days. It'll be riches to you. I mean, in every way that it can be. Read the Proverbs. It's amazing what wisdom will bring to your life. Exalt it more. It's worth more than gold. It's worth more than silver, is what the scripture says. If somebody said, hey, I got, I got 100 pounds of gold, or an ounce of wisdom from God, which would you pick? 
That's a tough choice, right? It shouldn't be. Exactly right. If you pick that, then you're going to be wise. And you won't need this. Okay. That's the end of part two of our presentation today. Remember I mentioned to you if if you have a fortress in your heart and it's been exposed to you, yet for whatever reason, I mean you could understand the reasons, but you, you maintain a grip on that, it's really a form of idolatry because you've taken your thing and you've exalted it above a true knowledge of God. I'm going to read you a long course of Scripture. And it's not going to be a direct, it's not going to be an easy direct one-to-one to to correlate these two. But I want you to hear this about idolatry and and see it through the lens of your stronghold or your fortress that you're, you're holding on to for fear, for who knows why, okay? It's from Isaiah chapter 44, and I'm actually going to read you from the New Living Translation. Here you go. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Who is like me? Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one. How foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God, an idol that cannot help him at all, or one bit? All who worship idols will be disgraced. Let's stop for a minute. It seems like a harsh word, but if we got something in our mind or something in our heart that we're exalting for any reason, fear, pain, all that kind of stuff, it's foolish. It's foolish. It cannot help them one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced, along with these craftsmen, mere humans, who claim they can make a god. They may all stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. The the blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding and shaping it with all his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it. He works with chisel and plane and carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and puts it on a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. He says, ah, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and makes his god a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and to roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? 
The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? And that's what it boils down to. Here's a person who has all these things, so they create for themselves an idol to help them. And they bow down before the altar of that idol. And, and the scripture's like, it's a piece of wood. Some of it you use to heat your house. Some of it you use to cook your bread. And this little bit you use to make yourself a god? How's that god going to help you? It's no god at all. But that's what the fortress in the mind is. Satan establishes these little gods in our mind that he's behind to try to get us to die to Jesus, to die to the life, the abundant life that Jesus purchased for us so that he can kill, steal, and destroy. And then through our pain and through our fear because of our experiences and our pain, I mean, it's totally understandable. It's just messed up. We, we have this thing that we exalt above the true knowledge of God, and we're afraid to ask, is it really a lie? Can I put it down and be safe? We either trust God or we don't. If we do, then we've got to walk the hard walk because it takes a little while to build that thing up. Sometimes it's down in a second. That's what I saw Thursday morning. It was glorious. Sometimes it takes a while to pull up the roots of that thing. It's a dandelion in your yard, and you snatch off the flowery part, thinking you killed it. You didn't. The flower's the symptom. If you didn't take the roots out, that dandelion's going to be back before you wake up tomorrow morning. It takes courage. It takes a fear of the Lord, and it's going to take love from brothers and sisters to confront these things with each other such that we will be a city on a hill, right? That's how Satan, people look at the church and say, well, you know, what do you have that I want? You don't look any different than me because Satan has done a good job. But if God is for us, who can be against us, right? If we know the truth, the truth will set us free. I got a bunch of scriptures. I'm not going to read you any more today, but... The Bible is a light unto our path. The scriptures are. The word of God is the truth. And, and if we will know and we will acknowledge the truth, we can be set free. So today, we're going to you know, we're gonna praise and worship God next. And hopefully we'll minister to each other, you know, pray for each other, continue to intercede on behalf of the physical things that are going on in our church that Jesus died to heal. But maybe the biggest heal is a healed heart. Because I got bad knees. I don't. I'm not sure how to call my knees. I'm not sure what to confess. But they don't feel that great most of the time. But my heart says to not forget any of the benefits of my God who heals all my diseases. So that's where I stand. But if I got a broken heart, that's way worse that Satan can use than if I got sore knees. So let's start to minister to that. Let's start to be brave and bold. And start to really seek out, look at the symptoms, and figure out where the roots are. Amen? Amen. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you that you are a God who sets us free. You deliver us from every evil, Lord. And we purpose to fear you, to reverence you, and to hold on and to trust with all our hearts what you say. Your word, your ways, your thoughts are so much higher than ours. You created us. You know how to make us to have an abundant life, we acknowledge you. And Lord, as we start now to praise and to worship, we ask that your Holy Spirit will come down and just 
really saturate this place, that the ministering angels would come on behalf of those who would inherit salvation, and that we would start to uh, courageously examine the symptoms that we might get after the roots. And then your church, Lord, will be a city on a hill, shining just like a beacon of light, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, drawing all men unto you when they see what it means to be Christian, to know God, to love God, to be loved in such a way that we can be healed and delivered. We just praise you.